Chapter 4. The giganticism of this one level of change upwards was also due to what was what I was leaving at home and what I was inheriting as home in my workplace at San, in, El pa, in El Paso. For instance, juxtapose what I have said about Tapiac Hall to a two-room apartment across from a park also, but one which was totally devoid of greenery and an all-dirt playing field. This is all in Las Cruces, the place that I left. And that dirt played field was surrounded by skinny, skimpy trees. On the dirt field there were three bases and home plate, and there was chicken wire for a backstop, and there were holes in the chicken wire. The rooms of that apartment in Las Cruces could not have been more than 13 feet by 13 feet each. There was one room which was a kitchen, had room for a kitchen table and chairs, and had a cooking coal-burning stove with a janitor-like closet and a janitor-like sink for washing of mops. But that's what served as the only running water which we had. The other room was bedroom and living room combined. And that consisted of two twin beds, naked light bulbs hung from the center of each of those rooms. And each was hanging from a cord, maybe a yard long. There was a small table at the end of each, uh, each bed. There was no room for chairs in this living room, but we didn't have any anyway. And there were five of us who occupied this space. My mom, my sister, who was a year and a half older than I am, my two younger brothers, and myself. There was no door separating the two rooms. There was a curtain which served as a divider at a doorway. Our bathroom was modern plumbing, but it was located at an outside, outdoor, smaller building. There was no bath, no shower. Bathing took place in a huge tin tub which was filled with water drawn from the sink in the janitor-like closet and heated on the coal stove. My mother and my sister would hang sheets around the tub when they bathed in the kitchen. No one considered any of this out of the normal. In fact, our outdoor bathroom, although it had modern plumbing, as I mentioned, many homes within a stone's throw from our house had plain outhouses. Our parents had split when I was about four years old, in 1938. My mom took five of us, there was Frankie, Danny, Betty, me, Alex, to Las Cruces when she left our Sil Silver City home to go to Las Cruces. And at the time, she was pregnant with our youngest brother, who became Mo. His name was Elmo, but we called him Mo. Mo was the only one that was born in Las Cruces at the time that I moved from uh, Las Cruces to El Paso. By that time, my brother Frankie had already moved out. He lived with our dad in Silver City. That's also in New Mexico. My brother Danny had moved to El Paso about a year or two before my move. He went there to be able to go to a Catholic high school. And I say this to highlight that at one time, six of us plus my mother lived in those two little rooms and with two beds across from that dusty park on Oregon Street.
From the front of our apartment, one could look to the east on Oregon Street, and one had, a, it still does, a clear vision of the majestic Oregon Mountains, a beautiful vista. Sad to say, none of us looked in that direction very frequently at that time. I've been narrating what my sixth grader eyes saw when I faced life in Las Cruces in 1947. What my sixth grade eyes saw when I viewed Tapiac Hall. As soon as you walk in, there's a small lobby. As soon as you enter the two massive doors of, with brass plates and brass handles. And off of this lobby are separate, separated by a wall which is half glass and half stucco is an office large enough for three regular-sized desks, plus three or four filing cabinets with rotary phones on the desk. There were also some typewriters. The space of the office and the lobby took maybe 16 feet from the front door. Then one entered an enormous auditorium with chairs along the two sides. The ceiling went up two stories, so it gave it a cavernous feel as soon as you walk in. There were six ten-foot windows going up on the wall to the right and the same on the wall to the left. At the extreme end of the entrance stood a meager stage with a violet russet-colored drapery. I say meager because it didn't have the depth which any stage needs for any type of play production. It served as a platform for a microphone and little else. The flooring was wooden and highly polished in contrast to the rubber tile of the lobby and the offices. That was also highly polished. One tiny corner to the immediate left as one enters this cavernous room is a small cubicle barely big enough to hold one stand large enough to support one turntable for vinyl records and a space for perhaps a stack of 70 records and and no more. That small inconspicuous space contained what was to entertain crowds of three to four hundred jitterbugging teenagers for at least one 12-month period. And that happened every Friday, maybe sometimes on a Sunday. All the teenagers were just from one of high school, El Paso's multiple high schools. There were the athletes and their cheerleaders as one crowd. And then there were the ordinary kids. And then there were the rougher crowd. Some in zoot zoot pants. The athletes brought the co-eds dressed in bobby socks. The rougher crowd had teenagers with mini skirts and enormous pompadour hairdos. Each side respected the other, and each stuck to its own, and no lines were ever crossed, while dancing ruled the night at least once a week. Beneath this dance hall were, when, when Tapiac began its role as a youth center, with its 50 yards or so from end to end, was an equally long basement for entertainment of a less intense nature. The basement was divided into one-third for pool tables, three to be exact. 
Two-thirds of the space was for at least one ping-pong table and maybe five card tables. Precisely for that, card games and or dominoes. The pool tables were the most popular, next to the counter at the far end, which served cold drinks, nothing but cold drinks, for ten cents each. Those were the days when cold drinks went for ten cents apiece. Interestingly enough, the basement was built to house a walk-in safe like a small but serious bank would love to have had. No telling what the Oddfellow organization stored in that that was of value. The youth program found the safe space just right for pool hall equipment, pool balls and pool cues. This walk-in safe featured two sets of entrances, the one huge massive safe door which was keeper of a dial for correct combination to open the locks. The second set of doors required a key to allow entrance to the storage where the pool balls and the cue sticks found a home. As an occupant resident of this youth center, me and my brother earned the right to carry two keys for that fortress of a safe. One key was in my brother's pocket, one was in mine. It became my responsibility to see to it that the pool equipment came out and went back at closing time. It was me opening that second set of doors for the walk-in safe. A small perk, but to me felt like a giant responsibility. Think about it. How many grade schoolers walk around with a key to a genuine walk-in safe? Think, too, how important that seventh grader must have felt with that long skinny key. To me, as I say, the small perk was felt like, felt like a huge important perk. Never mind that the treasure in the safe with no gold bar in sight was pool balls and pool cues. As mentioned, both the first floor and the basement went approximately 50 yards deep. The basement's length was also devoted to storage of an enormous monster of a cooling and heating system, plus a dark room whose photography equipment had been removed. The dark room became dead space. That was space not used by anyone. But we lived in an air-conditioned building. That was another first for me. The counter for the cold drinks became my domain, and I would spend dance nights selling iced-down sodas and was able to keep all the profit for me and my brother. My brother ordered the drinks from the respective soda companies and ordered the ice blocks, blocks of ice, from the ice company. I got to chip those ice blocks to ice down the, the, the cold drinks. On a good night, I could sell 70 cold drinks at a dime apiece. Those $7 a, uh, a night were as much as I had earned in a week for sweeping five schoolrooms after my brother had left, and I inherited the position of head janitor in Las Cruces Holy Cross Elementary. Yeah, in the sixth grade, I became head janitor, and I had an eighth grade boy as my assistant. This was a huge advancement in earning power for a seventh grader to double his earning capacity, and it felt like going from, a, say, from a rookie at a bank staff to vice president of the whole enchilada. One other room in the basement was at the extreme end from 
the pool room and behind the counter where I sold the cold drinks. And that was a kitchen almost the size of the two rooms at our Las Cruces apartment. Its stove was twice the size of, as our Las Cruces coal burning stove. And this one was gas. I had never lived in a home with gas and air conditioning. The enormous kitchen with the double sinks and hot and cold running water also had a refrigerator versus an icebox in Cruces. In Cruces, one of my weekly chores was to go with a little red wagon to bring home a block of ice for the icebox. The kitchen featured a, a pantry larger than the outdoor building at Cruces with modern plumbing. That kitchen, I realized, belonged to Danny and to me. This constituted another boost in importance, to be part owner, not only of a kitchen, but one with a refrigerator, gas stove, and hot and cold running water. I had, of course, seen my mom cooking in her kitchen, but I never cooked with her, as my sister did on occasion. At Tapiac Hall, I watched my brother cook with the interest to learn the simple things he was doing for us. Cooking vegetables, doing soup, making sandwiches. I was watching in order to learn. More importantly, I was learning how to grocery shop. In Cruces, I frequently went to pick up one or two items from my mom at the grocery store or to the bakery. Like when I went to ask the butcher for 50 cents of a round steak or to ask the bakery staff for 10 cents of day-old bread. The day-old came in larger quantities my mother had learned. I have recounted what the first floor looked like with a lobby and its small bathrooms plus an office space large enough for three secretarial desks plus filing cabinets and how that opened to this enormous auditorium with which could accommodate three to four hundred dancing teenagers, and a stage for a microphone. Now I want to take you to visualize what you see when you climb the stairs to the right of the lobby. First you arrived upon what normally would be the second floor, but instead there was a mezzanine. This low ceiling room projecting only partially over the floor below was more wide than deep. There you find two executive-sized desks, a chair, and a lounge area. A lounge area with a couch and two overstuffed chairs. You also find a radio cabinet tall enough to serve as a table, consisting of an attractive piece of furniture. One wall in this mezzanine had two doors which opened to be able to view the auditorium below. The opposite wall had a door of glass which opened to a small balcony which faced the park in front of Tapiac, faced the front of the building. Now I want you to visualize the space where we slept. This is the third floor where a full-size regulation basketball court is. Before entering the gym, you enter this anteroom, a rather large area which had two small rooms for equipment purposes. One of the small equipment rooms became the space where Danny was assigned to sleep. He had an army cot and an army blanket. 
One small table with a white radio at the head of the bed. One desk and a chair and a small chest of drawers. When I moved in, the army cot was replaced by bunk beds. I took the top bunk. All else remained the same. So our room opened up to a larger room, which opened up to the gymnasium. That's where we slept. We spent very little time in that room other than sleeping. We spent more time in the mezzanine lounge area.